KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. What's up, guys? Hey, Seamus, where are you? I am at Elysian Park. Why? Uh, my kid's friend is having a birthday party here. You can hear somebody beating a pinata in the background. Oh, I thought you were there because you got another flat tire. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Maybe you should go back to tubes. Maybe you should go back to tubes. <laughs> Seamus, you don't really have a flat tire again, do you? someone applied maybe the wrong kind of tape at some point but it is getting worked on now okay well on that note welcome to bike talk everybody what do you do today taylor i spent the weekend working at a lci workshop and the league of american bicyclists teaches people how to ride bikes safely in urban settings Occasionally, the league sets up weekends where they teach the teachers, and that's what I did this weekend. We worked with about 16, 18 students who had already taken safe cycling classes from around the region, and we taught them how to be league-certified instructors so that they could go on and teach other people. And I think this is interesting because no matter where you are, whether it's Los Angeles or, or Massachusetts or Detroit or anywhere, the league and different organizations do sponsor smart cycling classes. And these are really great resources for people who want to bike more, but aren't quite comfortable on the road yet. And it has changed the way I ride the bike. And I I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed teaching people who are now going to teach. Super cool. And if you get LCI certified, then you can teach. Can they teach me how to change a tubeless tire? (laughs) I can teach you how to fix a flat. Tubeless? No. I told you, Seamus, I'm old school. (laughs) I mean, listen, this is a fluke. Mercury is in retrograde, so we flat tires. Well, you know, flats do come in series of threes, so I think you got one more coming. Oh, no. This one is the third. (laughs) Or fourth, fourth, maybe. Don't you get this spray of... White, gooey, blue all over my face. (laughs) Does it always hit you in the face? (laughs) Every time. Well, it covers my whole body. I don't even know what the science is about how tubeless tires work. It's like supposed to heal itself. Is it sort of like a non-flush urinal? No, I think it's more like the symbiote in Spider-Man. Well, our first interview is yours, Seamus, and it's with Joe Linton, who is a longtime bicycle advocate who's been on the show many times. And Michael Schneider, the founder of Streets for All, which created the Healthy Streets LA initiative, which would force the city to implement its own mobility plan every time a street is repaved and they're trying to make it a ballot measure. Joe just wrote an article in Streets Blog LA about how the city has distorted its record on implementing the mobility plan in a report that was recently released. And it is misleading about how much of the mobility plan the city has implemented. You talk to them about this and you get to the bottom of this, right, Seamus? I wanted to talk to them about Joe's response in Streets Blog to the big reveal of this program's portion of the mobility plan. They were super upset at the lack of information in it. It's just like an ongoing conversation between factions of the advocacy group. And after this interview, there was a a discussion at some point, but there were no cameras and no no reporting allowed. Right, I was there. That was a lunch down at Union Station. 
And it was it was very interesting and I think very helpful. I got a lot of information out there. This is a topic that we're going to have to discuss a lot between now and March of 24 when it is going to be on the ballot in Los Angeles. So I'm really glad you took the time to get these two guys to sit down. Um, because one thing I, 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 Nick, I'm sure you agree with me, and I know Seamus, you do too, that the cycling safe street community has to have a united front if we want to not repeat the kind of problems that we've had in the past with vehicular cycling and John Forrester and not putting in safe bicycle infrastructure in our cities. We're at like a really unique moment in our history where, because in large part, this initiative is on the ballot during the pandemic, we were starting to lean into active transportation more. And now it really does feel like it's, it's going backwards a little bit. The initiative, it looms very large in many minds. We are starting to see just how complicated and, and confusing the entire situation is. And so hopefully over time, we do get to the, to the bottom of it. But here is the beginning of that. Great. Today, I am with Joe Linton and Michael Schneider. Um, Joe has been in the game for a, a great deal of time. Michael Schneider is relatively new, but meteoric rise and really has um, moved the needle quickly in Los Angeles in profound ways. Thank you guys both for joining us today. For our listeners who might not know, give a quick introduction of, of who you are and how you came into bike advocacy. In the 90s, I was part of one of the co-founders of the LA County Bike Coalition, did a lot of river advocacy, trying to get the river bike path extended and built. And um, I helped work on LA's first open streets festival, Ciclovia, which premiered in 2010. And for the last almost a decade, I've been the editor of Streets Blog Los Angeles. So on a daily basis, I write about the, the stories of how LA is trying to become better for bicycling and busing and walking. I am Michael Schneider. I founded an organization called Streets for All, which is LA's first and still only political action committee focused on transportation. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. I used to drive absolutely everywhere. And about 10 years ago, I went car free and started to use a bicycle to get around. And it only took me about a day or two to realize how unnecessarily unsafe the city is for people on bikes. Streets for All is my attempt to change who's on city council. We support candidates that share our values. We're not trying to get rid of cars. We just believe you shouldn't have to risk your life to ride a bicycle, and we should prioritize the bus over private cars. I also serve as the chair of the Transportation and Sustainability Committee for my neighborhood council, which is Mid-City West, and I'm on Metro Sustainability Council and LA's Bicycle Advisory Committee. Uh, the planning department released the um, mobility element of the Los Angeles general plan, a program's progress report that is supposed to show kind of the, the progress made since 2016 on the on the 2015 mobility plan. What was the big disappointment here? It's actually a really hard report to write on because they spent pages and pages and pages to say almost nothing. <laughs> the city asked for some report backs and was actually pretty detailed, saying they wanted mileage, they wanted it by council district, they wanted um, what what facilities were being implemented in what what might be called equity focused areas on low income communities of color, and um, the 
the planning department came up with a report that that completely ignored all the mobility elements, mobility elements, <laughs> all the all the bikeways, all the bus lanes, all the pedestrian areas, and reached into this sort of podunk appendix in the in the back of the mobility plan that has things like LADOT updating its procedures and stuff like that. And then they said, um, you know, oh, our assessment is that of 173 total programs, 76% are either completed or are being implemented on an ongoing basis, which is, you know, mealy-mouthed, um, meaningless crap, frankly. I mean, it's so, so it's sort of, if, if you, if you had to pick a way to not really be reporting real information about the plan and real information about mobility and safety in Los Angeles, this, this is how you would do it. First, let's start with what, what is the mobility plan exactly? The city's mandated to have a, a general plan and the general plan has to have various things like housing and, and mobility is one of those things. And historically, the city would draw a bunch of lines on a map and say, we're going to widen all these roads and we're going to build all these new roads and we're going to do all these things for cars. We're going to build freeways. We're going to build off ramps. And then the politicians would approve that. The planners would hand it off to the transportation department. The transportation department would say, okay, let's, let's build it and would start building it. Everyone that calls this plan advisory or theoretical, it is really not. Uh, if you draw lines on a map, and you say a protected bike lane should be on this street. There's nothing theoretical about that. You're saying that street should have a protected bike lane. And the mobility plan is full of stuff like that for multiple modes. And what has happened, what Joe just said is very true, is the city, they do make developers widen streets automatically. But the optional part are always the bike and bus lanes. And we don't think the mobility plan should be optional. And that's what Healthy Streets LA is. It's, it's literally the simplest concept and the simplest ballot measure ever. All it says is if the city repaves a street and that street has mobility plan treatment, a bus or a bike lane, they have to implement that treatment. That's it. Almost in all cases, there are trade-offs to implementing bus and bike lanes. We don't have extra space and we're not advocating to widen roads more. So yes, the space for a bus lane for sure. And most of the time, a bike lane needs to come from somewhere. That's some, the options are usually street parking, curbside parking a vehicle traffic lane, or in some cases, a center turn lane. We have a lot of center turn lanes that don't need to be there in the city. For the last 50 years, the city's been cramming car lanes in with very little public process. Um, you know, <laughs> wide streets got extra diagonal parking, got extra turn lanes, got multiple turn lanes. And, you know, the DOT just said, hey, trust us, we're, we're the engineers. And look, there's this mobility plan that says this is an art material and we need to make this street you know i want to use a curse word but whatever as wide as we can imagine it all for cars and and there were no community meetings when that when the dot was doing that i mean so should should we be should we have a collaborative process to to implement plans in ways that serve communities a absolutely but there there is no city requirement for um for removing parking, for removing a center turn lane, for, for reallocating road space. The Department of Transportation committed to certain outreach processes and analysis prior to removing space from, from, 
from driving. And they do that. It's not required by the plan, but but the, the city committed to it in a in a lawsuit settlement. Technically, DOT doesn't need permission, but the the hang up here, the really frustrating part is the outreach requirements that certain council offices have historically, and today some still put on LADOT to get a project done. Can you talk about the process of drafting Healthy Streets? Yeah. Um, so I'll say Healthy Streets started in a different form in the beginning. It started as a multi-billion dollar bond measure to provide a lot of money to do major corridors throughout the city so we didn't have to keep begging Sacramento or the feds for the money to do capital projects. That's how it started. It turns out our attorneys weren't convinced that it was legal to qualify a bond measure from a citizen's point of view that only a city council can can cause a city to become indebted. So then we went to a sales tax measure, which is legal, and a parcel tax, and neither one of those would have passed for our polling. Only the bond would have passed. So then we said, okay, we don't obviously not going to do the effort if voters won't adopt it. And we came up with this very much simpler idea. We're not providing money, but you really don't need money in the context of repaving because you have to restripe the street anyway. Let's just do it really simply and make the city follow its own plan. The other thing that inspired it was so many people that I've become friends with within the city have told me the mobility plan is advisory. It's a suggestion. We don't have to do it. It's not an ordinance. So our thought was very simple. Let's make it an ordinance. We also looked at what Rhode Island did. Um, I believe there was some work in Seattle and I want to say Minneapolis. And we, we looked around and said, these cities are doing this pretty well. I'm sorry, Cambridge, Massachusetts was the other one. These cities have already done a version of this. It's working pretty well. So it could work here. They're saying that something like 76% of the mobility plan has been implemented. How do you think, why do you think they are able to say that if we, we really don't see it that way? By putting out a number like this, they are insulting our intelligence and trying to pull a fast one, which, of course, it's obvious. And it just doesn't build trust with anybody. The city has turned around and said, oh, you want us to do more than 3%? Well, you're wrong and you shouldn't expect anything. And we're going to just get in the way of implementation and not we're going to step up implementation to show good faith and to to solve a massive, you know, epidemic of deaths on our street and and a climate crisis that's bearing down on us i mean the city has the city has has responded to a crisis by saying oh the the plan we had to address this crisis we, we don't want to do when we're not going to even report on how much of it we've done you know it's like it's like the city sticking its head in the sand instead of rising to meet a crisis you know and i, I think that what we are advocating for all of us really is a fundamental change in our transportation system, right? I want to talk about the coalitions. Um, we had our streets action committee on and, and they seem somewhat hostile to the healthy streets initiative, I would say. Um, and I want to, I want to see, get your guys perspective on, on like what kind of coalition is going to be necessary to get this initiative passed. We have built a really wide coalition of business interests, people like LA Business Council, BizFed, et cetera, labor interests like Lane, um, health foundations, National Health Foundation, Labor, Unite Here Local 11, Climate Resolve, et cetera, Move LA, and 40 neighborhood councils have all come out in support of Healthy Streets LA. We're not going to get everybody. 
we recognize that. The question is whether some in this coalition or people that we would want in the coalition may have reservations about Healthy Streets LA. Is it better to force the city to do the mobility plan and work from there? Because we're not going to get another shot at this. We had to raise um, over a million dollars to collect these signatures. It's so hard to raise that money for a single city local issue like transportation. I don't think we're going to get another bite at this apple. If we want the mobility plan and future mobility plans to become law and have the force of law and they have to do it, we've got to rally behind healthy streets and get it done. It's the only game in town with teeth. I don't think that the city's version, like Joe said, is going to really have teeth or it's going to have a lot of exceptions. And I think we're just going to get a lot more of the same. What do you foresee kind of happening and what kind of changes do you think we see for bikes in LA? I would say when it passes, the city is going to have to choose. Do they want to be sued for noncompliance? We don't want that. Or do they just want to implement the plan they said that they wanted to implement when they adopted it? They really have two choices. There are people biking on every street in Los Angeles and every street should be made safe and every block should be made safe. So I, I don't see, I mean, the, pro, the, the problem isn't, I mean, the problem is that the city's been sitting on its ass for seven years, implementing very little. And the, the Healthy Streets LA is, yeah, it's gradual. It may be a block here, two blocks there, a half mile there. Um, but that adds up over time. I mean, and, and inaction, which we can see, is, is way less than even piecemeal action. So at a minimum, if it passes, the city starts to piecemeal in facilities and, um, and those start to add up. The discussion changes from do we implement the plan or not to how do we implement the plan? Ultimately, at some point in this process, there is a need for the council office or the council to to act in a way to to implement it. Right? They're they're going to need to decide through these community hearings, community meetings. Are we going to get rid of parking? Are we going to get rid of a lane of traffic? That that does require council action. Am I? Am no, I, it doesn't because it does not. DOT does that today to add yeah. parking, to add turn lanes, to add car lanes. There's no, there's no council, there's no council decision involved. The DOT has been slamming car lanes down Angelino's throats for for decades with no hearings. Yeah. So I mean, it should should there be a hearing when you're moving parking? Probably, but. There is no, there's no requirement for it. Okay. Seamus, I, I think what you're correct. It will take the conversation from should we follow the mobility plan? Should we put in a bike lane? Should we put in a bus lane? To we are legally required to put in a bus or bike lane. What is most important to the community? Is parking most important? Is a vehicle traffic lane? Is a center turn lane? Those are usually the three options. What is most important because we have to make room for this somehow? It just changes the conversation from should we do it to how should we do it? What do you see as the biggest obstacles standing in the way of, of either implementing the mobility plan or passing the Healthy Streets Initiative? Is it what, what, are, you, what are your hurdles here between now and uh, the next phase of this? One of the biggest obstacles right now, amazingly, in implementing the mobility plan is lack of staff and resources at DOT. We have gone from Council District 1, 5, and 13, and 4 prior to 2020. So those four council districts, not only never asking proactively for bike and bus lanes, but most more often opposing bus and bike lanes. 
all of a sudden, DOT has four council offices saying, raising their hands, saying, we want bike lanes, we want bus lanes, like quickly, quickly. And they don't have the staff, they don't have the resources. The mayor's budget came out and DOT asked for a 29% increase in their budget and the budget's completely flat. And 18 Green New Deal positions that were approved last time that they haven't been filled, and that's a whole other conversation around HR's dysfunction in the city, um, have been eliminated. So they are just so short-staffed, and I think that's a huge barrier to mobility plan implementation right now with this council in many of the districts. You also have council members that still are allergic to bus and bike lanes and are going to oppose them. The plan has been in place. The plan was approved almost a decade ago, like that the city hasn't taken it seriously is, you know, demonstrates the need to hold their feet to the fire. I mean, un until the city is challenged by this sort of a voter revolt and and the threat of a lawsuit, um, the city's going to sit on its butt and not and, and keep doing keep stuffing more cars down our throat. Keep keep making streets better for driving and until it's forced, you know, by initiative to 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 change that or by initiative or by community organizing and political leadership and stuff like that. But I mean, it's it's if, if the city is is ill equipped to implement its own plan that's a decade old, that, then the, the then the city is telling us that it that we shouldn't expect them to do it and we need to force their hands. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. See you later. It's a difficult issue. There's a lot of equity issues. Is the mobility plan still relevant today, eight years later, uh, after it was first you know, written in 2015? We have uh, another interview coming up. In Toronto, we have a guest interviewer, Madeline Bonsma-Fisher, who has been on before, and she's interviewing Mark Elliott in Toronto. And they talk about the kind of ammunition we need as advocates to fight back at the NIMBYs who want to get rid of bicycle infrastructure. And I think Mark Elliott does a really good job of breaking down why we need bicycle infrastructure and how a lot of the arguments against it are disingenuous. All right. Well, here it is with Madeline Bonsma-Fisher. I'm speaking with Matt Elliott, a Toronto professor who writes about local politics and is well known for his pointed tweets about city council that make you want to laugh and cry at the same time. So Matt, you wrote an article recently in the Toronto Star about a new anti-bike lobby group in Toronto. So can you talk a little bit about the general political situation in Toronto right now? I was not surprised that we are having a mayoral election here in Toronto. And with that comes more interest in a range of civic issues. And with that comes people who generally have decided that bike lanes and the need to get rid of bike lanes is a top civic issue. It seems to happen with every election we have in the city. They pop their heads out. So the emergence of this group calling themselves Keep Toronto Moving was not a surprise. But I thought based on my experience writing about cycling as an issue in the city, it might be helpful to sort of cut them off at the pass and come out with some arguments against the stuff that they're putting out there to try to prevent this from just becoming one of those things that lingers in the political scene where we just start hearing more and more of this anti-bike rhetoric as we get closer and closer to voting day. So I laid out my perspective, which I think is grounded in the facts and the data that we have and generally got a pretty positive response. So I'd call it a win. Bike lane discourse and the kind of political stuff around that can really seem to dominate and derail elections that happened in Ottawa a few months ago with our mayor election. And 
Can you talk a little bit about what Keep Toronto Moving is claiming or what their position is? This group actually spun out of another anti-cycling group that was active in the fall when our city council was debating whether to make some bike lanes that were installed in Midtown permanent. And back then they called themselves Be Rational Toronto. And their arguments are basically unchanged. It's just that now they are targeting bike lanes more generally. But it starts with this idea that the traffic that exists for car drivers in the city is in large part due to bike lanes that have been installed on some streets in the city. And from there, they also like to argue that emergency services has been greatly affected. So ambulances and fire trucks aren't able to get to where they need to go because of the bike lanes that exist. And then there's also an argument that the bike lanes are just not used by anybody. So I think those three areas are kind of the triangle of their argument. So I wasn't able to tackle all of them in the article, but the ones to me that really stand out as lacking strong foundation in facts is the idea that car traffic in the city is because of bike lanes, because A, we have lots of streets still. The majority of streets do not have bike lanes on them. And those streets have lots of traffic. There's no bike lanes on the 401 or the Gardner or the DBV. And you can sure as hell expect to find some traffic there. So that doesn't really hold a lot of water with me. And then again, we have lots of data based on traffic counts and traffic studies that show the impacts generally are minimal in terms of travel times when you actually look at it and compare it to travel times across the city. And then the other argument is just that nobody uses these bike lanes, which is obviously contradicted by all kinds of studies the city does. They do account before bike lanes are put in on the number of bikes on a street, and they do account after the bike lanes are put in on a street. And all the major bike lane projects that I've followed, it's been a pretty darn significant increase from before versus after. So in the article, you calculated a number that there have been almost 13,000 net new trips per day across all the major routes that Toronto has put in in the last 10 years. The latest count that the city had was, I think, from like 2016, 2017, somewhere in there. We're talking years and years and years ago. And I would expect that that number has only gone up since then as more people have taken to cycling and the mode share has grown and stuff like that. So I really look at this 13,000-ish figure as a baseline, probably the lower end of what we would expect in terms of new trips that have been added on bikes since these lanes were installed. And the point I make in the article is this idea that people have that are anti-bike lane, that cyclists only travel by bike, like they are fused to their bikes and there's no other way they get around. They just stay home without bike lanes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We know from actual data and statistics and talking to people that lots of cyclists also own cars. And I would wager that of these 13,000-ish daily trips, he took away all this bike infrastructure or a big chunk of this bike infrastructure and made the streets more dangerous. Some of them might just say, you know what, I feel safer driving and I'm going to revert to driving to get to work. And that's just going to make the traffic problem that these people are complaining about even worse if you're just adding thousands more cars to the road. Do you think people might argue that these trips are also people who used to be cycling on a nearby route or a parallel street, and now they've gone to the main road? I think they might argue that, but that's the other arguments that the anti-bike lanes groups like to come up with is we're not anti-bike lane. We just don't think they should be on major roads. Put them on these side streets where they won't get in the way of our car traffic. And I have two things to, to say about that. The first is it's interesting to me that it's never the counterfactual that's proposed where it's, oh, okay, why don't we just leave the main streets to cars and bikes and we'll just take some parallel roads nearby and make them the roads people can drive on. That never seems to cross their mind, which is interesting to me. And 
then also look at a map. There are not these perfect parallel side streets that exist where we could put bike lanes and bikeless could ride on them and only be like a block away from their destination, which is probably going to be on the main street, right? So it's it's a geography problem that I always get very suspicious when people are making argument, but not really citing specifics. So if somebody really wants to propose a parallel route that they think would be great for cyclists, then have at it. I'd take a look at it. But instead, it's always this vague sort of hand wavy stuff, which immediately makes me suspicious that this isn't really what they're proposing. It's a two-step plan. And the first step is get rid of the bike lanes. Step two is theoretically put them on a side street. But if they only do step one, they're probably going to be fine with it and just be like, okay, we're done for now. We'll figure the rest out later. Yeah. And at some point you have to get across the Don Valley where there's one bridge. Yeah, so exactly. Everybody exactly. needs to go on the same bridge. Exactly. Why do you think there is such vocal opposition to these projects that comes out around election time? I think traffic is frustrating for a lot of people. Mobility is frustrating for a lot of people. And then I have a lot of sympathy for that because getting around cities is hard in a lot of cases. It's hard for cyclists. It's hard for pedestrians. It's hard for transit users. And it's hard for cars. And it's hard for most people, which are some combination of all of those things, right? But I do think in particular, and I felt this when I drive, is that there is something about being behind the wheel that sort of regresses me a little bit to like a childlike mindset about things where you're so frustrated, you just want to get home and you're looking at a bike lane and maybe not seeing a lot of cyclists go by at that exact moment. And you're like, if that wasn't there, I would pull over here and I'd be home in no time. Or worse, they're passing you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think most people understand that that is way too simplistic thinking about how cities work and mobility works and all this stuff. But it's easy to fall prey to that frustration and let it boil over and sort of channel your political energies that way when I think everybody would be better off if we were thinking more holistically about how do we make cities move better for everybody. And because there's no more room to build more roads or more lanes, some people might suggest that's the solution alternatives just has to be the thing that we focus on. I find it so interesting that when I look at the city's reports on a project like the Midtown Complete Street on Young Street, they have Mm -hmm. many different categories they're evaluating the project on. Do people feel safe? Are people coming to the street? Are they spending money? Do people feel that it's meeting its goals? And in the case of Young Street in particular, the city found extremely high support for the project when they go and interview people after the project. 75% of the people they spoke to agreed that the project had met its goals of increasing safety and comfort and supporting businesses. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these other amazing benefits like the cycling level of service went from like E and F on all the segments to straight A's. Mm-hmm. The number of people cycling doubled. People had shorter crossing distances when they're walking. And yet the average vehicle travel time increased by 11% in the northbound direction. So adding Mm -hmm. 48 seconds to like a seven minute trip. Mm -hmm. Somehow this becomes the overarching story about this project. So again, just coming back to this point of like, why is this (laughs) the only thing that matters for some people? Yeah, I think people look at a complex problem and they would love it if there was a simple solution. And if it was really as simple as we just tear up these bike lanes and all of a sudden it gets super easy to drive around the city, maybe they'd have somewhat of a case. I'd still disagree with it, but that's obviously not the case. But to engage with traffic as an issue, you see it in this mayoral election, right? There's always a bunch of candidates who come out and say, well, I got a big plan for traffic. I'm going to fix traffic. And the reality is a big city is never going to be easy to drive around in. 
like the day when you could just jump in your car in Toronto and get where you need to go in a few minutes, not in our future, unless there's a massive economic collapse. A sign of a successful city is that it gets harder to drive around in because there's lots going on and there's people trying to get from A to B. And again, that's where alternatives like bike lanes just become a solution that we just have to embrace as a city. I do feel like we've made some progress on this, like the anti-bike stuff is not as loud and vocal and prominent as it once was when I started covering this, but it still exists and it's still a factor. And there's still some mayoral candidates that are making tearing up bike lanes a big part of their platform. So I think it's important that cycling advocates are out in front of it. I sometimes worry, though, that shouldn't we give airtime to what ultimately ends up being kind of a small group of loud opponents. And the city has a solid cycling network plan and they're quietly working away at it. And a lot of these projects that they're opposing are either already done and going to stay or pretty certain that they're going to go ahead. What in particular can we gain from engaging with their arguments or getting in front of them, as you say? I think some of the arguments that this group was putting forward are arguments that I think to a person who's not super plugged into the cycling advocacy world might be sympathetic to, right? Like the notion that, hey, you know, I'm not anti-bike lane. That's become such a line from these kinds of groups is to say, like it says right on the Toronto movie page, that they're not anti-bike lane. They just oppose them on main streets and want them on the side streets. And unless you hear somebody make a decent counter argument to that, it can sound like a reasonable position. Like, oh yeah, maybe we should be looking at side streets, even though, as I said, the map doesn't really support that. And then also, I think you could argue that if you look at where... Toronto has had opportunities to put bike infrastructure not on the main street and put it on something like a side street. There's been some of that happening already. But again, I think there's this real concern that some of these arguments just get insidious and people start thinking, okay, that doesn't sound so bad. They say they're not anti-bike lane. And that's where I think the calling out is important to make it clear that you know what, you are anti-bike lane, even though you say you're not. Right. Do you think there's anything that we could say to them that would communicate that this could be good for them too. I mean, the coming to this point of those cyclists are less people in cars is a good one. Is there anything else that you would say to kind of promote bike lanes for someone who doesn't tend to use them? I think you really have to say, you know what, traffic in the city is trending to a position where it's just going to get more and more and more. We are not at a position where we can fix traffic. So let's dismiss that argument out of hand and let's think about alternatives. And then on the personal level, there's lots of people I talk to that are actually interested in cycling and the arguments for why they don't cycle are arguments that are addressed by installing infrastructure. So they say, bike lanes don't connect to where I need to go. Well, you know how we fix that? We install more bike lanes. So I don't really feel safe riding a bike in Toronto. Well, you know how you fix that? You install safe infrastructure in Toronto. Give it a try, do a bike share for a day or something. And I think you'll find that where there's infrastructure that's been installed, it doesn't necessarily feel that dangerous. So that's where I think people have this idea that it's like this sort of hardcore group that cycles in the city and the average person does not. And I think reaching out to those people and saying, hey, give it a shot. And I think Toronto is actually well positioned for that just because starting to have a decent network of safe separated bike lanes, though construction and maintenance is absolutely an issue. And we have a bike share system that allows people to give it a shot without having to invest in a full on bike that they own. So I'm hearing anecdotally from more and more people that looking at the state of traffic these days and even the state of the TTC with the service cuts that are giving cycling a try this spring. So I'm hopeful that that is a trend we will see play out and make this anti-bike stuff less of a political force. I think the pandemic was not a good thing for anybody. 
But one of the silverish linings of the pandemic was that Toronto saw the greatest expansion of bike lanes in my lifetime installed with some of these active TO projects. And we also got these weekend closures of major routes. I wish it had lasted longer, but while it was going on, it was some of the best days that I had during COVID was going out there, exploring those closed streets, both as a pedestrian and as a cyclist, depending on the weekend. And one of my favorite things to see is I actually saw parents using that as an opportunity to teach their kids how to ride a bike. So I saw multiple kids, I think, you know, that moment where they're being pushed by the parent on the bike, and then all of a sudden they're riding by themselves. And it's like this feeling of freedom and mobility, and I'm moving on my own and balancing. Just to actually see that playing out on a major street in Toronto that normally would be choked with cars was just like a really nice moment. This is city and community and the power of cycling. And I wish it was still going on because what a cool thing to see play out on a street like that. That is very beautiful. It does give me a lot of hope. So thank you so much for talking with me, Matt. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that was a good interview. Yeah, I think it was important. We often hear about how cities are are putting in infrastructure. And then when there's a loud minority of voices against it, sometimes they take it out. Yeah, and Madeline's done several good interviews now, so I hope she keeps doing them. Yeah, I just finished a really great read that actually you you sent me, Nick called If Thoreau Had a Bicycle, and it's a it's a book by Mark Kramer. I want to welcome Mark Kramer back to Bike Talk. Mark has been on in the past, I think it was 2019 you were on when you wrote your book, The Old Man on a Green Bike. But you have a new book out now called If Thoreau Had a Bicycle. Welcome to Bike Talk, Mark Kramer. Well, thank you very much, Taylor. And uh, this is, uh, last time it was in person, but uh, the connection is so good today that it that it feels like in person right now. Right. Well, we, there's no way we can be in person because you're in Paris, right? Right. That's right. That's the home base for your new book. I just finished reading it. It's just a delight. It's a 40-day travel journal, really. It's a love letter to Paris, I think, and the surrounding area. And it's a love letter to the bicycle. And your term, which I just love, metabolic energy. And lastly, it's a it's a love letter to um, Thoreau. So can you give us a little breakdown of what the book is, what it's about, what made you write it? Well, the mantra that got me uh, writing it was a Thoreau quote. If he walks half of each day in the forest, he's regarded as a loafer. But if he spends his whole day cutting down that forest, then he's considered an enterprising citizen. Right. And so Thoreau tried to reduce the amount of work in his life, and he spent it exploring, and mainly on foot. He also did canoeing. In his book, Walking, which is the template for my book, he goes out every day discovering, uh, discovering new things, in, mainly in nature. His philosophy was we should go forth on the shortest walk in the spirit of undying adventure. This is a great message because now uh, with we have climate change, we have pollution, we have uh, loss of biodiversity. And with all these uh, crises, if, if we were to localize our travel, we would, uh, we would reduce our, our emissions, our right. CO2 emissions. And wherever we are, it's amazing. We can find great places to go including L.A., where I've lived for right. 10, 10 right. years. 
And so uh, this is a, an idea of localizing travel and reducing our emissions and using metabolic energy while we do it. Right. I'm curious about how you came up with this idea of, of doing these rides in, in this way. Well, I have to say that the idea in part comes from uh, Thoreau uh, because he once said, my vicinity affords many good walks. For many years, I have walked almost every day, but I have not yet exhausted them. <laughs> so in my particular case, what I set out to do right. by each day having a different destination and in particular to make it a voyage of discovery, I chose non-tourist places. And I did this with the idea that it's not so much my going in the Paris region. It's, it is, you could take it as a travelogue, but especially it's to encourage people to do the same thing in their own regions. So oh, I wasn't great, going yeah. to see yeah. uh, all the famous places. I was going to discover new places for me right. that tourists don't know. And maybe many Parisians don't look, uh, look for either. So when you were on your rides were you able to you know be in safe biking areas or were you often just riding your bike like you would drive a car well i have to confess that uh i grew up as a vehicular bicycler sure i mean i, I think we, that no we all are yeah right we had no choice and i would say probably about 60 or 70 percent of the time i found places to ride where there were either no cars or where the bicycle infrastructure was so good that there was no concern about the cars. Right. Everybody talks about the great job that Anne Hidalgo is doing as mayor of Paris. And it right. is great. And it started with the previous mayor, Bertrand de la Noé. So it's been going on for 20 years since I've been here, in fact. However, what they need to do is to integrate the suburbs better because the suburbs are lacking in these facilities. And most of the cars that go into Paris and cause problems are people coming from the suburbs, many of them forced out of Paris because of the cost of, of housing and now having to come back into Paris to drive. And so we have to also feel like these people are not invaders. They are almost being obligated to do this. Right. And we have to have better facilities for them. One of the things you talk about in the book, and one of the things that you were choosing not to do on your rides was this term called crass tourism. I'd love you to explain that because I think that's such a great term for how so many Americans see Europe and even really see the U.S. when they travel. I'm so happy you asked that because really that was one of the one of the 39 adventures uh, <laughs> was trying to see how many cities I could actually go to in one hour. It was right. a rainy day and and I and in the suburb a lot of these cities bump into each other as happens in LA too. And so I managed to get seven cities. I, I was going for eight, if I recall. I actually cut corners on seven, seven different cities. So uh, that was crass tourism. And that gives you the bragging right to say, hey, I visited seven cities in, in France. <laughs> but of course, I didn't see anything, right? <laughs> meaningless, right? I didn't right. see anything. Well, one thing also I would add is that uh, I'm, I'm not good at multitasking. And so when I go for a ride, I don't take 
I don't take a cell phone for other reasons too. I don't take a camera. It, it helps me to focus in my mind. My visual memory improves when I'm not taking pictures, but it also uh, using Thoreau's idea of uh, from Walden actually of uh, having chance meetings, which he called uh, social communication. The third, he called it the third chair. The third First chair, right? chair is for yourself. Yeah. Second chair is for your friends. Third chair is for people you're meeting along the way. And by not traveling with a, with a selfie taker, I, I had to depend on people I would meet to take pictures, right. uh, to document some of the trips that I was doing. And also to, to tell me where's a good place to, is there any museum in the neighborhood or, or where's a good place to hang out? So this in, improved my interaction with the, uh, with the locals around there. So that, that was another uh, tactic I used. And that came actually from Thoreau also. Right. You have a great comparison between Atlanta and Barcelona. And you talk about gun control versus car control on one of your day rides. And I w- wonder if you could talk about that a little bit about how Atlanta is so dependent upon the car. And as a result, they had 564 deaths due to traffic violence where Barcelona is only 27% dependent upon the car. And of course, their traffic death was, was much lower. I did some bicycling in Barcelona, and Barcelona happens to have the same population as Atlanta. So the comparison is really cogent. You have all these people who are not dying in, in Barcelona right. or dying in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And eventually, this affects the life expectancy of a, of a city and a country. So... You look at the the car as a as a weapon of mass destruction when 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 you when you see these statistics and I and I wish I'm I'm fighting I'm a an angry old man and I'm still <laughs> trying to to fight for the people in my country which is the USA right to to defend their people against the madness of just accepting all these automobile deaths that don't need to happen. Is it possible to follow the Thoreau technique of uh, human energy right. in the USA? Right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you you really do go back to Thoreau in almost every chapter of the book, almost on every every ride of the day, you find something to bring it back to Thoreau. I want to ask you sort of a personal question. I'm 64. And my father is 98, and I think you're 77, you said. Is that correct? Yeah, I just turned 78, right. Do you think about or do you worry about the time when you will no longer be able to ride a bike? I, f- I face that reality, but I don't worry about it. I, I know it one day it's, pr- it's going to happen, but I don't worry about it. And instead of that, I just rejoice every day that I can because at my age, who knows what's going to happen, but I enjoy every day when I wake up and I say, well, I can go out today, use my metabolic energy, whether it's hiking, walking, or cycling, then I'm really grateful for that day. So I'm looking at it every day at a time and I'm trying not to, to think about a later period in, in my life, if I get to that, right. when uh, when I won't be able to bicycle. Okay, thank you for that. That's that's good advice. For some reason, well, well, what I do, do you think, think about, about that? that? Well, what, what I you- I enjoy 
biking so much and it has been a big part of my life for a long time that for some reason I do have this worry about what's my life going to be like when I won't be able to ride a bike. I don't worry about when I'm not able to drive a car. In fact, I look forward to that. I, I, I don't like driving a car now, but I really do get an awful lot of spiritual pleasure out of riding the bike as well as physical pleasure. And I, I, I am concerned about um, that time, but I think your advice of not worrying about it and enjoying each day up to that time is, is good advice. The bicycle has been my therapy and nobody else could have told me about this, but being on the bike and pedaling and just breathing it's been my a great therapy for getting through these things and sometimes for even coming up with ideas that will help anybody near me who is going through a hard time that I might not have thought about if I were just staying home. Something happens with the mind when you're on the bike, not only the heart. That's a great place to stop. Mark Kramer, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. Your book is called If Thoreau Had a Bicycle. Yes, thank you. The publisher is called Steady State Press. All you have to do is Google Steady State Press. I'm encouraging people also to back a, a small publisher as opposed to buying from Amazon. But I do refer to, if I could, Robert Kennedy's, uh, when he spoke about GDP long ago, at that time, it was called Gross National Product. And it says it measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. Mark Kramer, if Thoreau had a bicycle, he would have ridden it, I'm quite sure. Taylor, if you come to Paris, I invite you to a couple of bike tours. I'd love it. This is Anna Zivartz, the director of Disability Mobility Initiative. And... There's going to be coming up a week without driving. I wanted to talk about both the Disability Mobility Initiative and the week without driving with Anna. Hi, welcome to Bike Talk. Hey, it's great to be here. The Disability Mobility Initiative is a program that I launched at Disability Rights Washington in the fall of 2020. I grew up in Washington state as someone who couldn't drive. I have a vision uh, impairment called nystagmus, makes my eyes wiggle. I can bike and I do bike for transportation and that is awesome. I started to meet a lot of other folks through my disability rights and disability advocacy work here in Washington state who were in a similar position, who also couldn't drive and also felt sort of largely excluded from being able to fully participate in our communities because our transportation system and our land use and our planning decisions are so centered around car dependence. And we don't really have the opportunities that we could have to fully participate. We started organizing non-drivers from throughout the state of Washington to start to demand better investments in non-car choices uh, for transportation uh, in our state legislature. And, and that work got started and we um, started having a lot of folks show up and testify in our legislature and share their stories as part of our story map project. What I really started to see was how this was not the experience of our elected leaders. For them, you know, for the most part, they could drive and they could get places easily and they just didn't realize how difficult it was to get somewhere without that privilege. And so the week without driving 
grew out of some of the work I'd done in, in a previous career uh, working in, in labor unions and the labor movement. Unions would often invite elected officials to spend a day in the shoes of uh, one of the service workers, one of the janitors. Uh, so they got to understand some of the challenges. And I thought, well, let's do something similar, um, but for transportation. And let's make it a week. Because over the course of a week, you really you know, have to, to fulfill a whole bunch of different responsibilities, whether that's going to the grocery store, loading up on dog food, maybe getting to a park or a soccer game with your kid, going to work, going to doctor's appointments. Let's try to have our elected leaders experience those things uh, so that they can understand some of the gaps and some of the things that we can really change. Maybe, maybe there's little things, easy things to fix uh, that we could do right now that would make it safer and more comfortable and easier for people to get around without driving. We really want to have it be grounded in mobility justice principles, right? So that this isn't really about how easy or convenient it is for you to get around without a car, because we know that you know, if you can live somewhere that uh, has really good transit service, has great sidewalks, has stores and things nearby, um, maybe has bike infrastructure, those are all privileges. And, and those places tend to be the places that are more expensive to live. And so the folks who need to be able to get around without driving uh, often can't afford to live there. And, um, you know, there's other folks who have to drive for, for work, right? Or, um, you know, there's people with disabilities who drive because we built this, uh, our, our communities based around easy automobility. And so we want to recognize all of that. We really want to have this focus on what's not working, um, what isn't great about uh, the way we've designed things and um, sort of light a fire under our elected leaders so they start to understand the call for change. Thank you. There's a couple statistics on your website about uh, only 69 out of 100 Americans has a driver's license, then something about uh, how many disabled people can drive. So there's a lot of people for whom this isn't a choice, just isn't just a week. Exactly. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And I think it really, you know, as we started talking about, you know, the percentage of people who are non-drivers who don't have that easy choice of, you know, hopping in a car um, and going somewhere. Um, I, I think that was a bit shocking to people in the transportation industry in our state um, and nationally, right. That people don't really think of it as a um, they don't they don't like to think of all those people together because it's actually a lot of us. It's, you know, at least a quarter, if not a third of some communities, you know, don't have that privilege of driving. And so we're not being served well by the way things are set up and we do need change. And and yet, you know, those of us who can't drive are often sort of invisible because we are, you know, young people, we're people aging out of driving, we're people with disabilities who may be stuck at home, uh, we're poor people. We're black and brown people. Like these, these are all um, identities that make it harder for our voices to be heard where decisions are getting made. The this idea that we do have a common interest in, in seeing our, our our communities serve us better and, and have easier ways for us to get around and, and be part of our communities. That's the organizing work that we're we're focused on. And, and there's a lot of reasons why people don't drive that don't exclude biking. I mean, some disabilities, biking is not an option, but probably the majority of people who can't drive for whatever reason probably could bike. Yeah, I know. I mean, especially now with so many e-bikes and um, e-trikes and other forms of smaller than car e-mobility devices, I think there's so much potential. Um, the, the challenge is really, you know, is there the infrastructure? Is there the safe places for people to store and charge um, these vehicles? You know, can people afford them? 
all of those things that make it difficult. But I think there's there's so much potential if we were able to really create that space, create that infrastructure. All right. Thank you, Anna Zivarts, for representing the Disability Mobility Initiative, of which you are the director, and telling us about Week Without Driving. Thank you. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around.